So this particular morning is a message that we create together. And I have any number of questions from you. I have the stack. And if there are additional questions, you're welcome. If you hadn't quite gotten yours composed and written, you're welcome to come on up and kind of slip it to me on the side here. We'll see where it falls in the selection. And I will answer them to the best of my ability in the time available. And any questions not addressed directly in this moment will help inform our worship for the coming year. And perhaps they will inform uh, what happens in the life of the congregation as well. So in case you haven't been around the question box sermon before, you may wonder, why? Why is Reverend Jennifer looking to us for our questions? Doesn't she have plenty of things to talk about all by herself? Or is this her way of getting out of writing a sermon? I mean, you know, that's a fair question. So let me address the second question first. Um, plenty of things, absolutely. We have only just begun to explore the larger message of progressive religion in this time and in this place, in this moment in our human history. And to answer the third question, I will tell you, in case you've ever like been wondering, been a public speaker or done this, to show up and answer the kinds of questions that you may offer with almost no time to think about them in uh, really does not let me off the hook. Let's put it that way. Um, and, and I want to add to that that we do this, that I do this in the context of worship um, and need to remain so in the context of the service on Sunday. Uh, whatever is asked, believe me, this is, this is both fun. For me, this is fun. And it's also serious business. It is both. So let me offer a note about why many, many Unitarian Universalist ministers will do some form of the question box sermon. Our congregations choose who will preach and who will lead the services. And once chosen, the minister, the guest who's, you know, the, or the guest who's been invited into the pulpit, the minister may say, they speak the truth in love as they see it. Uh, this liberty is part of our free pulpit tradition. And at the same time, part of the trust placed in the preaching minister is that we speak to the lives of the congregation and to the larger world and our larger faith of which we are a part. And to do this, the speaking too, without ever asking what are your concerns, what are your big questions, keeps the minister from wonderful sources of inspiration and information. And for me, it's really part of living out the covenant that we have shared. It's about living out our mutual promises that that we are together, that I will hear you and you will hear me and we will create this, this congregational life in this moment. So, we'll see. We'll see where we go on this particular Sunday because every question box sermon is a little bit different. Let's see. So we have, so while I am laying out the questions in the moment, 
when I've done this with my spouse, the Reverend Patrick Price, because when our previous ministry, we were co-ministers and we would do the question box sermon together. Um, that was enormously fun because we each have different experiences and different styles. Um, one of us would be over here kind of sorting the questions and the other one would be over here at the pulpit. And then we'd take turns. But one of the ones I want to offer, uh, volunteer a little bit uh, first, is because there was already a question this morning, um, was about my stole. I'm going to step out here. So new stole, this is the premiere of this stole. Uh, for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with kind of liturgical garb, this stole uh, represents a commitment of service, a commitment of, a commitment of service in ministry. Um, it goes back in some ways as far back as uh, the cloth that Jesus would have held put around his neck when he washed the feet of the disciples. It's one of the most powerful images of this. But the soul largely represents that I am ordained and I am committed to being in the service of Unitarian Universalist ministry and with this congregation in particular. And I will offer a little bit about this one because if you are at all a fan of Doctor Who, this excellent long-running British sci-fi series, that this might resemble a certain scarf from a certain doctor, the fourth doctor in the Doctor Who show. So I thought this was a really good one for the question box sermon. Doctor Who? Who? But um ching. So which kind of fits with what I'll take for the, first, uh, for the first question that I received from Phyllis Close. Uh, why did you become a minister? Why did you become a minister? Was it earth-shaking or was it a gentle process? And I'll offer the note that, you know, I get to be the minister, so I get to like, choose kind of fun stuff like this. That's my side benefit. But... Why did I become a minister? Well, I grew up in Unitarian Universalism in Massachusetts, um, third generation, and was really around the church my entire life in one way, shape, or form. Grew up in the congregation of Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, that was known for being more humanist, uh, but it was historically universalist, had the same historic roots as this congregation, and was involved with youth programs and so on. And when I got to college, when I got to college, I was doing a theater degree, not an acting one, not a performance one, but a technical one, and of uh, stage management and lighting design. But I also knew that I wasn't going to make money in theater. My mother was kind of relieved when I like figured that one out, or at least from her perspective, from her perspective. I knew that wasn't my vocation, let's put it that way. So I sat down trying to avoid calculus one night in December with way too much caffeine. And I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do after college? What am I going to do with my life? And realized that in all that I had been taught, all that I had learned and all that I had done, that I needed to be of service, that I needed to be doing more that I could live my values out into the world. And to do so in creating the kind of community experience that I had been in church and in youth group in so many ways 
that's what I had to do. And it was very much that existential, duh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into ministry. I even interrupted my friend who I was studying with and said, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And he's like, that's great. Can we get back to calculus? (laughs) So it was both made all the sense in the world and was a wow. And then I went from there. Let's see. Let me do one I want to make sure to cover in the moment. Speaking of how do we create the community together, one of those ways that we create community together is to have fun. One of the conversations we've had with leadership and with the staff and so on the last few weeks has been, how do we have more fun? We want some more fun, yes? Do we need more fun? Yes? Do I get a yes? Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely, amen, yes. So, one of the things we were going to do that is fun is that we will, on September 11th, which will be our in-gathering water communion service, that that will be a chance, one, for, for the gathering in is the official start of our church year. We want to have everybody come on in, back into the congregation, whether in person or whether online. And after the service, that we will have a potluck. (gasps) No food. Yay! There we go. Yes, the potluck is not just saved for the picnic anymore. We will have potluck. I want to invite folks to bring in some good stuff to eat. And we will have kind of a splish-splash kind of day. There will be water activities. So if you have children or youth, have them bring a spare set of clothes. Maybe even bring a spare set of clothes yourself because, you know, water happens. Water happens. So we will have some fun in that way. We are talking about when to have the October trunk or treat for Halloween. We are talking about all kinds of things for fun. So I want to invite you to stay tuned to the newsletter and announcements to see what happens. Jesse, were there are the other fun things that I have forgotten just before? Oh, oh, game night. We're going to have game nights, the return of game nights. Yes. And other things. Yep. Yep. Very good. I really want to appreciate, uh, say thank you to the Religious Education Committee for thinking about the fun as well. I have a question from, uh, that came up online before the service, and I think it's one that I really want to make sure to, to address in this moment, which is, does the church, or any church or religion for that matter, have any response to the rise of political extremism and demagoguery that, occur, that is occurring in this country? We have a response to the extremism and demagoguery occurring in this country. And is there anything as we, anything we either as individuals or a parish can do to help counteract this trend in a positive manner without adding unnecessary unnecessary fuel to the fire? So what can we do? 
individually and as a congregation, and I would say as a faith as well. And to do so in a way that would be constructive. I gotta take a sip before this one, this is big. All right. So my first answer to this is that simply by existing and doing what we do, we already are countercultural in that way. We are already saying that love and compassion and justice and including people and care and being community-minded, these are already things that we are living and promoting and living into again and again and again. Simply by doing what we do, we are annoying to those folks. That's right. Let's keep on being annoying. Simply by saying, we are going to read all the books, not the ones you think shouldn't be shown because you think they portray ways of life or understandings of people that, that you don't somehow want to protect precious children from. Simply by saying, people should have access to the bathrooms that they need to have, no matter who they are, that is countercultural. That is important, for example. Among many. As individuals, I think any time that we can show up and speak the truth and say, you know, this is not how, this is not the story of the world, of the society that I'm a part of. Anytime we can do that individually, we have power to do so. And we can reach out to each other along the way. So when somebody, so if there's a conversation about, I'll give an example. Um, if there's a conversation about that includes kind of racially profiling people, stereotyping people who are black or uh, brown or yellow or so on. And you say, you know, that's not the world that I'm a part of. And simply be able to say, I'm not going to participate in this conversation. That by itself is something powerful to do. This is not how I participate in a conversation. When folks get ugly and try to say, try to offer versions of the world that you're like, this is not true. And I think as a congregation, what we will be called to do, uh, we're going to start to do a couple of things. One, we have you, you, the vote. If we haven't learned that voting matters, I don't know when we're going to learn it, frankly, but we need to do it. We need to keep on to preserving the democratic process. So we'll have more conversations about you, you, the vote, uh, which is our kind of denominational uh, action about uh, supporting uh, voting rights, voting efforts, and justice, and access, and enfranchisement. Uh, we will also, I think, starting at least in, I think, September, if not next week, uh, the social impact team approved uh, returning to share the plate. Uh, 
so that means when we receive the offering, we will be uh, an, the undesignated offering, the loose cash, if you will, will be split with the congregation and with a destination of our choosing. The first destination, the first recipient, will be the New Mexico Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Um, and that is because they are working with the Texas Coalition for Reproductive Choice so that they may fly people who need abortions from Texas to New Mexico so they can have the health care they need. That is a powerful thing by itself. So we'll be starting to learn, starting that share of the plate, uh, beginning with that organization. And as you might imagine, this is not the end of the conversation, but that's just a start. Aha, uh -huh. we might have a question that's coming in electronically. This is fancy. No questions yet. Okay, fine. <laughs> I got plenty. I got plenty. Let's see what time is it. Ah, uh, we want to, let's see. So we have a question about why do I use the word worship? We do not pray to God. Some of us do, some of us don't. Um, whether with a capital G or a little g. How do you describe the word worship without uh, worshipped or adored? Um, whom are we worshipping? So, uh, what the meaning of worship is, is to be setting aside a time where we encounter that which uh, is of most importance to us, that which is of worth. It's kind of that simple, but it's also as complicated and deep and complex as we make it. That we gather in the service in this moment, we set aside time. This is like no other hour in our lives where we get to consider more thoroughly, more deeply, what it is that matters to us, what are we concerned about, and what are our fears, and that we do it together, knowing that we can't possibly entertain all of our questions and concerns alone, that we are more powerful when we do gather together, and that we bring out more perspectives on what's important to us than any one of us can offer alone. We come here so we can create diversity of thought and exploration and wondering, as well as more depth and more insight. And we do that regularly on Sundays again and again and again. Let me tell you, as someone who plans worship, Sundays aren't relentless. They happen every week, funny thing. But I tell you, every week there's no less, there's no, there's no less to say. There's no less to encounter. Because as we just heard from the previous question, there is so much that we wrestle with now. So our worship is, we have the service that is in support of our worship, which is the gathering together and the recognizing of what is deepest and most held and what we're concerned about and what we want to offer, what is our vision into the world. And that can be with God, that might not be with God, 
as I say, you know, when I, I have to see kind of when the, by, by the time I put the service together, whether or not um, God shows up. Sometimes, sometimes God does, sometimes not. I mean, you all, most of you have heard me preach. Sometimes God, sometimes not. But part of what's wonderful about Unitarian Universalist uh, congregation in this moment is that we are a place where we have the big tent of theology, where we can talk about God, or we can talk about not God. We can talk about what is it that, uh, what is it, what are our, how will we figure out our place and power and development in the universe? And we can have the greatest expansiveness of language to do so. So if there's more, so sometimes you're like, I, I am not about the God. You know, I'm thoroughly atheist and hallelujah, well, so to speak. Because we all need one another in the conversation. Wherever our theological language takes us, we need one another. That's why in our seven principles, you're not necessarily seeing any one particular God. You have to come at that from your theological, from where you come from theologically to say we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That's not attached to any one understanding of God, for example. So. Let's see. And let me start to wrap this up. Um, I, I appreciate this. Is there a, this one's a little bit shorter, but it's also a little longer. I will keep it short. Is there a name for a person who is searching a spiritual direction? A searcher? Someone who seeks? A seeker? Um, that's a singular name. Um, and, and I kind of, I, to me, it kind of goes together with the other question. Um, why do we call ourselves Unitarian Universalists? Well, because this congregation comes from our tradition of the Universalist Church of America um, and the American Unitarian Association and came together. This congregation was founded in 1843 as a universalist congregation, one where in the Christian language at the time was concerned that to let people know that we do not believe in eternal damnation. That by itself is radical. That you are not going to be condemned for eternity because of whatever you do in this life. Because we believe in a loving, inclusive, and welcoming power in the universe. At that time, they talked about God and Jesus. That's evolved a lot in the last, you know, not quite 200 years, as it should. And we have... That line of theology and commitment to a free church, to members, to congregations who choose who are the, how to define members and who choose who their educators and ministers are, we are part of that tradition that keeps creating and co-creating the religious experience together because we know as an institution that we are uniquely situated to recognize the, all the ages of our lives, all the stages of our lives, and that we are all in this together. And we do so in Unitarian Universalism because it, for so many of us, it offers 
a place of liberation, a place of healing from a difficult religious path, a place of practice and focus if you didn't have uh, a particular religious origin. It offers a chance of service, whether it's with the congregation or out in the world. So we are within the Unitarian Universalist tradition, not just as an independent congregation, but as a much larger, current, larger history that's over 2,000 years old as well. And so we get thoroughly grounded in the tradition and the experience, as well as being open to new truth, and to do so in the big tent that is Unitarian Universalism. All right. I will need to wrap this up at this point. And there's like more big questions. I love the big questions. So stay tuned. I'm going to give you a preview of the big questions, which is, how can people say God is loving when so much horrible stuff happens? Right? Or why does God allow suffering? We'll be looking at that. The one I really, I haven't quite gotten this question before, but what is the source of love? What is the source of love? How about that one? And we might need to have another conversation just about that one. What's the source of love? And the other question uh, that we'll be working on this year, I want to offer as part of my priorities, um, Black Lives Matter isn't in the headlines anymore. Will Unitarian Universalism still work toward racial justice? Yes. Stay tuned. Yes. Because this is part and part, whether or not something is in the headlines, uh, a particular name or so on, we still need to be working towards a more multicultural, anti-oppressive, anti-racist life, society, not just our congregation, although we start here, but in general. So yes, we will still be supporting and abiding by the efforts that started in, uh, the, inspired us to bring the sign Black Lives Matter. Our larger faith is also working on um, uh, more um, reflection around racial justice and oppression and we're going to be part of that conversation as well. So. So what I want to offer in closing is a note of thanks. As you can see that the questions that we share, these kinds of questions are the ones that come up year after year after year. They are always with us. And so we will always have opportunities to address them together and to address them in worship, to address them in reflection and classes and so on. Because we, we are in fact part of the co-creation of this congregation. We are essential to it in all of our lives. And we are, and in this moment of kind of co-creating this beloved community, we are get to be this microcosm of how do we want to create and be helping to serve and help heal the world as well. We're never going to complete that task, just so you know. 
but we can be part of it in all the ways that we can. And I look forward to where we shall go for this year together.